a life of magic begins with astrology. This is just one of the brilliant quotes from the episode that you're going to hear or watch today from best-selling author, psychotherapist, and former monk, Thomas More. I wanted to record an introduction for today's episode so you have a little backstory, why this episode is so very special, how this all came to be, and what you can expect to learn. The original interview was recorded in 2018, and since then, the recording has only been available to students in our Your Soul Purpose class. It was then, and it's still now one of my favorite interviews that I ever recorded. So in celebration of Astrology Hub's seventh birthday and our seven days of giving, we've decided to release it for the world to benefit. I believe this discussion of soul, astrology, magic, alchemy, and more, plus Thomas's insightful and beautiful presence, have the capability to provide a warm light in these trying times. Not only is Thomas More a best-selling author of over 30 titles, including Care of the Soul, Dark Nights of the Soul, The Reenchantment of Everyday Life, and The Planets Within, but he is also an advocate and true believer in astrology's ability to help us make important timing decisions, and even more importantly, how astrology can help us reclaim what he says the rational world has disregarded. Before I did this interview, I took questions from our students in the Your Soul Purpose class. And most of the questions that came through were focused on soul because that's what Thomas is an expert on. But when I asked him question after question about soul, at one point during the interview, he stopped me and asked if we could talk more about astrology. I remember him saying, I talk about soul all day, every day. And I'm so excited to be here with you and your community, and that I get to actually talk about astrology, something that I equally love. And so we did talk more about astrology, and truly, this episode spans a lot of territory. In it, you're going to learn the behind-the-scenes story of his more astrologically-focused book, The Planet Within. Many of you have read this, and how he believes publishing this book on astrology is what got him denied tenure during his academic career, and why he says this is the best thing that ever happened to him. Why he believes it's so important to, quote unquote, arrange your life to be in accord with the sky. The three things that differentiate spirit and soul. How to know if you are in ego purposing or soul purposing. Where astrology and soul come together what magic and alchemy are and how they relate to astrology and why he believes Venus is the planet or the energy or the archetype that can get us out of the messes that we're in today. I smiled the entire time I rewatched this episode, delighting in his calm demeanor, the gentle way he re redirected some of my questions and the depth of exploration that ensued. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you're interested in learning more about soul and astrology and how you can use astrology to connect more deeply with your purpose and the everyday magic of your life, you're welcome to check out the popular course we did with astrologers Donna Woodwell, Stormy Grace, Tammy Brunk, Divine Harmony, and Nadia Shah. You'll learn how to uncover the clues of your soul's path by using your astrological birth chart. 
you can go to astrologyhub.com slash soul purpose to learn more and join this very special self-study course today. Again, that's astrologyhub.com slash soul purpose. Now sit back and enjoy this very, very special episode with Thomas Moore. Thomas, it is so wonderful to be here with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. I love to talk about astrology. That's so great. It's so amazing to meet teachers and people in other fields that incorporate astrology and, and acknowledge the power of astrology. Yeah, take it seriously. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Thomas, let's start with kind of big picture around the work that you've done mm-hmm. around soul. Because you obviously have dedicated so much of your life and your work to understanding soul and helping us understand soul. So what inspired you to go in that direction? You know, I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Soul! (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It's quite mysterious to me because I never, ever sat down any time in my life and said, I think I'll I'll make my life work a study of the soul. That, That would be weird to me. I would. Never would have thought of it. So it's something that crept up on me, I think. I I was a monk for a while, a Catholic monk, when I was very young. And, uh, of course, the word soul was very common then. And I studied Latin. I learned Latin. study. I think, seven years of Latin and was taught in Latin for years. So uh, anima and soul have been very familiar to me for many years. And psyche, too. Psyche, the Greek word for soul. So... Um, But then I think I really got seriously interested when I began reading Carl Jung. And Jung is is really uh, very explicit about soul and tries to sort out all those different aspects of the self and the world in relation to soul. So that was very, very rich for me. And I've read his, his collected works, 18 volumes. I don't know how many times I've gone through most of them. And then I met James Hillman who uh, is a, was, a, was a Jungian analyst and uh, studied in Zurich, was head of studies in the Jung Institute in Zurich for a long time. And he wrote uh, books about the soul. One of his early books was called Suicide in the Soul. So I loved what he did. I think he was just a great figure to me, very good friend and a very important mentor to me. So I think that's where it came from, really. It came from having a background where it wasn't very specific and focused. And then Jung helped me focus it, and Hilma did even more so. Mm. Were you still a monk when you were introduced to Carl Jung's work? No. I think I read a little. I think I read one. I think I did read one of those popular books that Jung put out, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, or one of those books when I was still uh, in the monastery. But I don't think, I don't think, I, I I know that I didn't really seriously begin reading him until I, I did my uh, PhD work at Syracuse University in religious studies. And I focused, my, my idea was to bring psychology and religion together. Hmm. So I, that's where I read Jung very seriously and really, really tore into it. Why did you leave the monastery? That's another question I don't know the answer to. Oh, you really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think I think either there are a lot of possibilities. Um, I woke up one time, one day. I remember one day in particular, waking up and realizing that whatever had kept me in that all those years, I was in it for thirteen years. Um, whatever kept me in it was gone. It just wasn't there anymore. 
Now, why it left, I'm not too sure. Sometimes I feel I was educated out of it because I got a very good education. And it was also the spirit of the times. It was in the early 1970s when the culture was going through radical changes and the spirit of reformation was in the air. And so I, I picked that up and I wanted, I wanted to be part of it. And I also felt it was time to, to make a big change in my own life. I wonder what transits you were going through. That's a good question. <laughs> Speaking of the 70s, you wrote this book, The Planets Within, in the yeah. 70s. What inspired you to write a book that explored the archetypes of the planets? Well, it's a long story. Um, I, I said I was at uh, Syracuse University. It was a wonderful program in religion, so open-ended and open-minded. Just uh, It was just wonderful. And I was studying literature and poetry and depth psychology, all in relation to the spiritual traditions of the world or having some connection to them. And I had to write a dissertation, and uh, I, I studied music most of my life, so I, music was very important to me. And I've always had a kind of a quirky imagination for things. I like odd things. So one day I was in a library and I just pulled a book off the shelf way up above me and I didn't know what it was and opened it up. And here was an article about Marsilio Ficino, who was, uh, they described him as an astrologer and a musician and a magician, magician, magus, and a theologian and a Platonist. And he was a priest. Wow. And I thought, wow, I can really identify with all those things. So, <laughs> so I had my topic, and he hadn't been translated then. His major work especially had not been translated. So, And I had Latin. I mean, I knew the Latin, although his Latin was very difficult. I, I, feel, I used to feel that he just must have cut up words and sprinkled them around the floor and then put them, put them together because they had no order whatsoever. It was, it was difficult to, to do it, but I did translate his book. And, and wrote a commentary on it. And then uh, that was very successful for me in my education. And then I thought it would be over with. I wouldn't even think about that topic again. But actually, a day doesn't go by that I don't. Wow. Go back to what I learned in, in that, that first book I opened up. So uh, it was largely about astrology. It was based on the work of Al-Kindi, who was one of the Arab uh, astrologers that Ficino relied upon. So it, it had those interesting roots in the Sufis and, uh, and the, uh, the Arabs and uh, the great, you know, the great intellectual culture, and they were very interested in astrology. And Ficino was, was part of a very important figure in what is called the Hermetic tradition, which is uh, a long historical tradition of magic. And, uh, and most of the magic, which, which is usually ascribed to a, a mythical figure, Hermes Trismegistus, most of that magic, the, the life of magic, instead of a rational life, a life where you live through magic, most of that magic begins with astrology. So like alchemy too, alchemy is done with an astrological awareness for the timing of what you do. And uh, magic as well. So whenever you do any form of magic, you you include an astrological awareness as part of your practice. So I, I, I read uh, Vicino's approach to, to uh, astrology and found it uh, very fascinating and deep. And so what I tried to do was take his work and make it um, sort of updated or make it relevant or intelligible to a modern audience. Well, and as I was mentioning before we started recording, so many of our students at Astrology Hub have now read your book, 
because Donna Woodwell fell in love with your book. And so now she recommends it to all of her students, especially the students in our shamanic astrology course, uh, because it's like you said, the, the roots of, of magic are in astrology. And so there's a, a foundation that the students get so that they can then go on to study astrological magic, which yes. is, yes. Well, that's, how, that's very perfect. How was that received? So you're, you know, a psychotherapist and you're writing this book about astrology. Was that like a risky thing for you to do or is another thing you didn't really think about and you just did? <laughs> you know, I don't worry too much about those kind of risks. Mm. I don't I don't care. People are, are worried about that kind of thing. It shows their you know, their mind isn't open enough. So I don't worry about it. I just go ahead and uh, deal with the consequences, whatever they are. I think I was I was denied tenure at the, at the university where I was teaching because of my interest. There's no question about that. I don't think it was specifically this book, but it was the only book I had published at the time, and I had to publish, and that was one of the reasons I think I was not given tenure, wow. which made tremendously. It was a great thing for my life that I didn't get tenure, but but I was disappointing at the time because I really wanted to be a college professor. Wow. But, uh, but I went on. You know, that's the way I live my life. I've gone through several big changes, and uh, I feel that they are the kind of changes that are – you know, it's a matter of time. Astrology is so much about time. It's time as an imagine, as an image, where you you treat time with your imagination rather than treat it as counting. You don't count time you, as much. You, there's some counting, but you don't you don't count so much as you see time itself as something else. It's an experience that doesn't have to do so much with uh, quantification. Mm. Have you witnessed? more of an opening from people to incorporate. You, you said not a day goes by that you don't think about Marsilio Ficino and, and the That's things right. you learned. So first, what does that look like? Like, how does it come through and how does it inform different things that you're doing? And second, have you seen a shift or witnessed a shift in terms of people's openness around this topic? I don't know if I've, to start at your, with your last question, I don't know if I've, if I've, witness a change of more openness. What I've noticed is that like our conversation today, I'm amazed that people are interested in it. I wrote that book so many years ago. <laughs> I don't want to say how many years ago it was. And imagine if you did something, if you go back and look at something you've written, you wrote 10 years ago. Now this is 40 some years ago that I wrote that. So uh, I, I wince a little bit when I hear that people are using it because I, I think I've probably advanced a bit since then in my thinking. But uh, still, I think it probably holds pretty well. I think there is some equivocation about astrology in it that I wouldn't have today. But I was an academic, you know. Oh, you, oh, yes, yes, yes. Like the beginning part where you're kind of yeah, yeah. making a case I, I, for it almost. I would cut that out. <laughs> Do you know what's so funny about you saying that is actually, and she might get really mad at me for saying this, but Donna actually said to me, you know, in the beginning, he, he's kind of like doing the academic thing and making a case, but so just skip that part and go right to the planets because that's where it gets really juicy. So it's so funny that you say you would cut that out anyways. Yeah, I wouldn't read it either, no. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, it's that's a long time ago. You're bound to change. And I was in the thick of the academic world, and I just finished a PhD and was teaching at a university. So that had an effect on me. I was thinking all these people around me, I have to hedge a little bit because yeah. otherwise I think I'm a total 
weirdo. <laughs> totally. So, um, but I, I love that material so much. I really do. And uh, uh, I, I think the reason that I keep going back to Pacino, well, I'll tell you that when I opened that book up from the shelf in the library, what I read was a, a passage from the opening of his book, De Vita Celitus Comparanda. I've never seen that translated well. It means something like arranging your life to be in accord with the, with the stars or with the sky. Celitus means. It's an adverb. It means skyly. We don't say that. Skyly, you know, like like the sky. Hmm. So how to arrange your life in a sky way or in relation to the sky is what it means. So I, I, I opened this book up and found a passage that said that there are three things in the world, the mind, the body, and the soul. If the mind is alone, if, if you're just working with your mind, uh, it has no connection to your body. If you just work with your body, it has no connection to your mind. You need a soul in the middle. The soul in the middle to keep your whole self together. And that the soul is a, is a mediating factor in the middle between, maybe even spirit and body. It's a mediator between the two. And ever since then, I've been giving lecture after lecture and talk after talk about soulful spirituality. So what I'm trying to say is keep the soul connected to your spirituality. Otherwise, it's going to go off in a crazy fashion. So it, I, I keep talking about that, that, that paragraph I read those many years ago. Wow. Thomas, how do you differentiate between soul and spirituality? So I have to tell you about soul to do that. Soul is, is deep. The word deep is connected with soul. It goes back 500 year, 500, uh, what, 6th century BC is when they first started, I know, first started talking about the soul is deep. So it's a very long tradition about depth and soul. So it means going down deep. Spirit tends to go high, up and high. You know, mm -hmm. then we always want like higher education is kind of a spirit activity, mm -hmm. higher education. So naturally for me, I've been advocating lower education for a long time, going down instead of going up. So that's one thing. Depth is really important, going into the depth, the in-depth into whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is. So I, you could call what I would want to do deep astrology. You know, it's mm. going deep instead of high, going soaring high and going up. If, if that metaphor works, you know, for, for what you're doing. A lot of, I think a lot of astrologers go up. They don't go down. Mm. Interesting. So uh, another thing that uh, the soul is very interested in the past rather than the future. Very interested in the past, very connected to the past. So um, uh, we love the, from a soulful place, we like antiques and uh, heirlooms, old buildings, living in an old house, and old ideas, mm -hmm. uh, all that, that past memories, keeping memories, photograph albums, and in psychotherapy, what we spend a lot of time talking about uh, childhood. So there's a big emphasis on the past in psychotherapy. So that's all quite interesting. I think that soul is 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 there in the in the deep and in the past. It's also uh, the soul is also more um, multiple. The spirit tends to to like unity. Mm. You don't read much in my books about unity. Mm. You know, it's, it's all about multiplicity and, and maintaining multiplicity and different points of view and communities that have a lot of diversity in them and diverse ideas and 
things not being put together. Even my books, I feel, I think I drive my editors crazy because I don't like to make them too unified. I never use the word integration, things like that. You know, I'm always trying to, to uh, keep things multiple and diversified, always, always. That that's a big job to try to keep yourself as diverse as possible rather than together. I don't, I don't want to get my life together. I want to get it apart. I want to get it in pieces and have all this richness and not have to resolve it into one place, but have it all spread apart. Another thing about soul is that it, uh, it, it is expressed best in imagery rather than in definitions and quantifications and numbers and things like that. Today, almost every aspect of our culture works by, by numbers, quantifications, and quantified studies, and all that kind of thing. To me, that would be a very soulless approach to whatever it is you're dealing with. So in, in, in a spirit way, in, in the spirit, we might also kind of, kind of move in that direction, wanting to define our terms and, and uh, be really clear. Soul is not so clear. It's happy to be fuzzy and complicated and very complex that sort of thing. So I think that uh, once uh, that's only saying a few things, but I had to think about this question you asked for several years before I felt comfortable with it, that um, to try to really grasp the notion that soul is something different. It's, uh, it's, it's equally valuable. Spirit and soul are equally valuable, but, and they need to connect always. They need to be connected, but they're very distinct. And since we don't, we haven't distinguished, the, we haven't made this distinction, we tend to neglect the soul and go for the spirit. So an awful lot of people are interested in spiritual things, but not a whole lot of people see that the soul is also important. Wow. Interesting. Thomas, when you are speaking about the soul being connected to the past and loving old buildings and old, you know, artifacts and things, I was, I, I can feel that so deeply. And one of the things that's made me sad living here on Maui is to see all the new kind of generic buildings going up, you know, and it's just like, and I keep feeling this, it's losing the soul. It's losing the soul. And you just really put words around that. Why do you, why is it that the soul is so connected to the past and these old things? Why is that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that really. I just know that that's that there is this part of ourselves that likes the past that uh, we can reflect on the past. And there's a bit of, maybe it's also because there's a bit of melancholy connected to the past. And the soul tends to like melancholy instead of being very spirited and cheery. Mm. Uh, not that it's sad or depressed or anything, but in itself, but that there's an inclination toward the, toward the reflective and the, and uh, uh, a withdrawing. And that sort of thing. So I think that's one of the reasons the past takes us to, uh, you can't think about the past without having some melancholy, missing people that you think about. Maybe uh, like for me, being an older person, missing some of the capacity and abilities I had when I was younger, certainly missing people and places, wishing I could be in all these places I've lived. There's a lot of melancholy connected to the past. And I think the soul thrives on a, a kind of melancholy, not depression. That's kind of a clinical problem, psychological problem. Melancholy is not a problem. It's just a, it's a mood or it's, a, it's a, a, an emotional set that you feel when you experience and think of certain things. We did, uh, I led a meditation for week one of the course, the Soul Purpose course. And in it, 
I had people sort of journey back to visit themselves at age like five to seven and then at age 16 and then in their twenties and, and really just like see if there's a thread or a theme that they could pull together. Mm -hmm. And some people reported that they felt really sad. You know, they felt sad Mm -hmm. in the process of, of visiting these parts of themselves and they wondered why, but you've just really answered that very well. Now, see what I do when I do that kind of thing, and I, I'm sure it sounds like what you were doing too, is I don't look for any answers in that going back. I don't, I'm not doing it for a purpose. Right. I'm not trying to extract anything from it. I'm trying to go back there for the sake of going back mm-hmm. and having the experience of going back in time and reflecting and thinking and telling stories and that kind of thing in itself. So as a therapist, when I talk to people about their childhood, I'm not trying to find out what was the cause of what's you know some problem they have in the present. Right. I'm going back to see what, what their soul is like. Who were they as ch- as children? Because they're still that. Don't think we grow out of that childhood. We pile it up. We pile up all of our experiences on on top of each other. We're very thick by the time we get old. <laughs> we have all these experiences. They're not. We're not on a straight line where that's. But we've left that behind. We're like a totem pole. We have it all with us. Uh, All right, Thomas, I have been asking our students in the Your Soul Purpose course to submit some questions for you around soul. Uh, Many of them are reading Care of the Soul right now. Some of them have read some of your other books. Mm -hmm. So if we can go into that realm right now, that would be fantastic. Does that sound good? Tell me a little bit more. What, what, What is it that they're particularly interested in? Lots of different things. It's It's been so delightful to have the questions come back because they're questions I wouldn't have thought of and they're kind oh, of yeah. in, in lots of different realms of life. So oh, we, great. You're going to ask the questions. Great. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Great, All right. So Marty is asking, I would love to hear a bit more about how to identify when we are in ego purposing versus soul purposing. Yeah. I often think I'm doing and feeling things for my soul, but find it more ego-related after the fact when I look back on it. Yeah. That's that's really important, yeah. To distinguish uh, even the self, I, from the soul, they're different. I do think there's an identity. that We have an identity that's very deep, a sense of self that is that is very deep and largely hidden. We don't know all about it. And it's not so much that active agent that the ego is that gets us through the day but it's a it's a deep sense of self and you may discover at different times of the day you realize who you are how you react to people and different things and maybe you've forgotten that you are that person too it's, it's very very deep so the soul give offers a sense of identity and uh i think in order to have to find your purpose you at the soul level you have to do it very differently from at an ego level. So you don't you don't uh, you don't do it rationally. You you find your purpose through reading the signs, for example, in life and in the world. So I'll give you an example. I was mentioning before that I was denied tenure at a university. When the when the chair of the department told me that, I remember it so well. He was a good friend of mine, and he he told me that, and he. And I was shocked because I didn't think there was any problem at all. I thought I'd just sail right on. And uh, and at the end of it, he said, uh, if you want to 
appeal this decision, you can do that. And it sounded like such a weird statement to me because he had already spoken. And what I heard was like the angel Gabriel had spoken, you know, this angel had appeared using his body and voice to tell me, you've got a shift now in your life. You moved, you know, from this second, you were a different person. Now you're moving in a different direction. You've been in this one, okay, you've been working at it now probably for seven or eight years. Now you have to shift. In this second, you shift to another. All I know is I was absolutely, totally certain. I didn't have any doubt. This idea of appeal or discussion meant nothing to me. I just have to go now in a new direction. And this is what I mean by the the soul purpose. You don't find it by figuring it out in your head and you know, that sort of thing. You 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 read the signs, you hear the world speak to you and give you your direction. You listen to the world, you listen to other people speaking not as themselves, but some voice speaking through them. And and that's how at least I've guided my life by listening and uh and moving in that kind of direction. That's to me, that's finding your purpose at a soul level. You listen for it, you don't figure it out. Do you have any tips for differentiating when when someone feels like they're listening but it's really driven by something else how do how do we differentiate between those things well <laughs> that's a tough it's not the kind of question it's almost impossible you're asking all these questions that i can't answer it's uh, it's difficult to answer that kind of question because all you can do is live your life in such a way that you 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 know what it's like to to obey that you are not in control of of your life at all ever like you're not really in control of it you are always watching and seeing what happens and willing to shift and move all the time so i think it's the preparation for it that really helps you make to distinguish you can't say, okay, these are the criteria. If you follow these five things, you'll know which is that is trustworthy. You know, you can't do it that way. Uh-huh. You prepare yourself by being a person who is very intuitive. It takes a lot of intuition to do that, who is able to listen to the world and is free enough to be able to make a move and a shift when you have to make it. Mm-hmm. That's the way I can put it. Perfect. Such a soulful answer, right? The mind is like, give me the prescription. And the soul's like, there is no, there is no prescription. No. <laughs> okay, good. All well, right. Lucas says you have to live your questions. Yeah. You can't answer them. You live your questions. Oh, very good. I love that. Okay. Lori is asking, how do we make death an ally so we may live a more awakened life? What's that word, death? Death. Yeah, death. Yeah. An ally. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of ways you can do that, two or three ways that come to mind. One, the probably the most effective way is to discover how to deal with the little deaths that happen throughout life all the time, that sicknesses and uh, failures, like my failure at the university, that kind of thing. You, you, have to, you have to really figure out how to Put them in in the whole context and the fabric of your life where you are not undone by them. You know, it doesn't it doesn't tear you apart and it doesn't destroy you. But you can be with them. I don't mean to bounce back and be heroic and cheerful with all these things. I mean that you actually incorporate this ending, whatever the ending is, into yourself, into your life, into who you are. And you don't feel that you don't give it so much power that it destroys you. 
but you you allow it to affect you, so you you change. Maybe change is part of it too. Learning how to change that's a good way to prepare to have death as an ally rather than an enemy. Um, and I think um, uh, another way to do it is to uh, do what Plato said. Plato answered this question. He was asked this question, very question, and um, he said that you should be like a philosopher who reflects on issues all the time. And the more you reflect on life, what you are doing is you are entering the realm of death as you reflect, as you really go deep into the questions that you have and that are being asked. That is a kind of dying, dying to life. You're stepping outside of life. You know, you may just go off on a retreat and suddenly that retreat is like a little death. You're no longer in with the thick of your life and you're not so active. You, you, you've shut down most of your you know, your body activity, you shut it down, you shut out your social life and all of that being on retreat, but you are reflecting, you're going inward. And that going inward is a way of preparing for death. So that's a good way to do it. I suppose meditation would be similar to that. Mm. Maybe similar. And I think there's, there, there's another way too, which is um, to, I feel it's really important to, to, to reflect a lot on birth. And this should be easy for astrologers. You reflect on birth and you realize as deeply as you can that you were brought into this world without your choice, without your decision. You've been given this life, that's birth. And death is like you are invited out. It's very similar. And I think if you can reflect on birth and feel feel it, really feel that and understand that you that you are here not by choice and that none of your will is involved. There is no will. You're here. And it's a gift. It's a pure gift. And the the invitation to leave is also in the same vein, same thing. Mm. So you don't think the soul decides to incarnate? You think that it's, it's uh, an opportunity that's given, but not really by any voluntary response? No, I don't see that. I don't see that. Mm. No, I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's a question I don't know. If someone else says something different, I really want to have a conversation with them about it. But when you ask me that question, I have to say that my attitude primarily is to be an observer and a receiver of life and not one who's in charge and one who makes any decisions. I don't need to. Those decisions are all made. That's what purpose means from the soul point of view, I think. Your purpose is, purpose is given to you. You don't. Your main job is to receive, and that takes a lot of effort. Here I'm going back to Rilke again, Rilke the poet who says that. Uh, we need, what he says is we need a flower like a muscle has. He calls it the muscle of infinite receptivity, like a flower opening to the sun. That's the image he uses. So flower opens to receive the sunshine. But imagine a muscle opening that flower. He says that's the muscle we need in order to be receptive. I think that is, to me, that is the most important thing. Will and making decisions, they don't seem to me to have a place. Hmm. How do you help people become more receptive? I know that's something that people struggle with. I think so much of our modern society is about like will and pushing and making things happen. So how do you help people take that different stance in their life? Well, in in terms of my writing, I write about it that way. I write a lot about receptivity. 
I may I quote that Rilke passage over and over again in my books. So I write that way. I try to write with that attitude and get that through. When it comes to being a, a therapist, I uh, I model it. I don't talk about it much, but I model it. And I, if someone tells me that they're having trouble making some big decision, I I talk it as though I am the uh, the receiver, not the doer. And I think that modeling helps. Mm. Okay, wonderful. So, Thomas, tell us how you see astrology and soul coming together. Well, one of the things I, I mentioned um, is that soul is more uh, more inclined toward multiplicity and diversity rather yeah. than uh, coming everything coming together into one. I think one of the great benefits of astrology is the multiplicity when you put all the different possible combinations together. I mean, it's so it's vast what you can do with astrology, with the with the twelve signs, the houses, the uh, transits. I mean. The planets, you put all that together, you've got a vast, vast, uh, uh, you know, infinite uh, possibilities there. So I think that's its, one of its great strengths is that, it, see, what we have to do whenever we think about life, we reduce it somehow. Yeah. Freud reduced it to ego, id, and superego. That's two, three is not enough, as far as I'm concerned. That's a little too narrow. Uh, another psychologist have reduced uh, human life. We have to reduce it in order to try to get some perspective on it and know what to do with it. But astrology does reduce experience to these, you know, to 12 signs and, and houses and, and all that. Um, but that reduction is not too much. I think it's uh, very rich and it can take us uh, a long way. So that's one thing. That's the one aspect of the soul quality of astrology. Another is I think it depends on how you do it. But the, the planets are named after the gods. and uh, Jung and Hillman, for example, just the main two people, have developed wonderful, vast, deep psychologies based on the gods, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And astrology has this. But I think you would have to really understand the gods and all their richness in order to make your astrology more soulful. That would be a way to do it. Mm-hmm. One, thing, one thing a soul doesn't uh, thrive on is symbolizing symbols in the sense of one thing stands for another. It doesn't work that way. It's like in dreams. I, I use dreams in my work all the time. I would never use a set of symbols for dreams. A lion represents strength and something. An owl is wisdom. That's that's facetious. You know, an, an owl is an owl. A lion is a lion. There's just so much there in, the, in that animal. You could, you could talk about it forever. So I wouldn't want to... to, uh, to reduce things, and I wouldn't want to reduce the gods to symbols of something. Venus is not just sensuality or sexuality or something like that. There are vast mythologies of Venus. So I would think that one way to bring some soul to astrology would be to bring more of the stories of the gods and goddesses into it. I know people are doing that. I know they're doing it. and They have been doing it for, for decades, at least, if not centuries. But I think we could do it more. I think that a lot of times people... A lot of people have the sense that astrology is kind of a symbol system. You just keep, you know, connecting one a thought and a and an image. It's not imagistic thinking. The soul is really, really only thinks imagistically, poetically, narratively, story, that kind of thing. So the more that element is emphasized, the more your astrology will 
have soul, I would say. That's one way to look at it. Thomas, it's so interesting. We were just recently having this conversation because what happens is when you're a student, you naturally people want it to be broken down and clear like this plus this equals this. And the whole conversation has been around how you can't really do that. I mean, you can start there, but the truth is it is so much richer than that. It is so much more nuanced. And we were talking about the house systems because there are like 30 plus different house systems. So there's 30 different ways to break up the sky. And in one house system, you might, it might mean this and another house system, you might think this about yourself. So the trick is being open to the idea that you could be all of it. And you, you, and if you get too married to one definition of yourself, when you were talking about the mini deaths, it's like, there's actually a mini death there. When you think that you're you know, Venus is in the seventh house at this degree, and then it changes and all of a sudden it's in the sixth house. And now you have to see yourself differently. That is a little bit of a mini death because what you thought you were is a little bit different now. So I see that process happening. How do you like, how would you help people? I love what you're saying about the narrative. And that's what we've been talking about in this class is like, we're putting together a story. It's, It's not, it's not a definition. Yeah. And there's another thing related to what you just said is uh, is the idea too that um, going to systems of the past and to other cultures would enrich and, and help diversify uh, your approach to the to, to it too to find out what you know what uh, in India what the uh, astrological procedure and what all the images would be there or somewhere else China or wherever wherever in the world that's done, or in the past, going back to the past in our own culture. And uh, I think there's a great deal to learn from the astrologers of the past. And that's what I've done a lot. I, I In my work, I, I refer to the, I, I consider these people I've written in the past to be full of wisdom and understanding. I don't have the sense that a lot of modern people do that. The, uh, that what we do today is so much better than what people have done in the past. I don't think that's true, especially in certain areas. And I think astrology would be one. So I would really study some of the great astrologers of the past. Maybe I'd look at uh, John Dee and uh, Robert Flood and uh, some of the, you know, Ficino himself and, and some of the uh, earlier astrologers. So Parachelsus would be a great one to, to study. He is so wonderful with medicine and astrology. To, uh, to be able to study all those things, to get insight into how you can do this in a way that's so much more delicate and refined than you would have if you only stayed with your own culture and in your own time. You know, there's a resurgence of people doing that. There's a, there's a big um, a, a rising trend in popularity of traditional astrology. There's a bunch of astrologers really committing their, their work to translating old texts. Oh, I know. Yeah. I have yeah. those translations. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's definitely happening. I think there's, there's so much richness that's being brought to the astrological yeah. conversation because of that. Yes, for so sure. Why, why astrology for you? Why do you believe that there's validity and how do you see it helping people navigate their souls and their lives? Uh, I have to answer that somewhat indirectly. Okay. Um, my field is religion and I define that very broadly. So any any I, I see religion as a way of of uh, establishing a relationship, an effective relationship to the mysterious. I think that's probably my definition of religion. 
I know religion is not a word that's in vogue today, but it's my field. What can I say? So, um, I, but that's how I understand it. I've understood it from the beginning of my studies in this field is that it is, it's an effective and imagistic way of dealing with the mysterious and the infinite, you might say. So I think that's what astrology does. It's one of those ways that is imagistic and ritualistic to the rituals of astrology are important. And it's a way of relating then to the mysterious that is effective. I think the wrong way to relate to the mystery is to try to explain it. That's contradiction in terms. So it's, your point is not to keep trying to explain, which is the modern way to explain the mysterious, but rather to find a way to live with it effectively. And the mysterious, whatever, however you encounter it, whether it's an illness or it's the universe or whatever it is, your life itself, death, all these love, these mysterious things we have to deal with all the time. These mysteries are, are so rich and, and make life worth living. And But we need a way of relating to them that is not, as I said before, too reductionistic. We don't, we don't want to reduce it all to some rational system. That, that loses, loses the whole thing, then you don't have the mystery. But there are ways to do it, and astrology is one. Alchemy is another. I think alchemy and astrology are, are somewhat similar to each other. In alchemy, Jung has shown how, how, how uh, effective alchemy is in trying to sort out the human life, human experience. And so alchemist, the alchemist uses materials, earth materials, like rock and stone and wood and chemicals and all kinds of things, little boy's urine, all kinds of stuff, in the, in the pot, putting it into the pot, and then seeing what happens when you heat it, and seeing the visions that come out of all of that. Well, astrology uses the planets and the sky. And so it's using the physical world, but looking at it and seeing ourselves reflected. It's Robert Flood. You know, Robert Flood wrote this book on the cosmos and the microcosmos. Mm-hmm. You know, how these two are, are mirroring each other. And if you want to understand yourself, look at the cosmos. And so there's a, there's a way in which alchemy and astrology really help us deal with the mysterious in ways that individuals can handle. It's not religion like an established religion. This is a practice with a long tradition. And you can learn it and study it, and it will do it will give you a very rich experience of yourself. My first astrology reading, so I had 13 years of Catholic school. My first astrology reading was my first experience of God. It yeah. was really just sitting there going, whoa, there is something so vastly intelligent that is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. The only word I can think of is God, but it's just that's that mysterious perfection mm-hmm. that is being mirrored in this chart. It's like, yeah. it's, it's completely mind blowing. Yeah, it is. How do you incorporate astrology into the work that you do? Well, that's a tough question. I have to say that it's like a confession to you that, it's like in our family. My wife is a wonderful visual artist, just incredible what she can do. She showed me a painting yesterday that it just floored me. And uh, But she can't do music at all. And I can do music. And I play the piano all, you know, most of the time. And I I uh, can I write music. And I, I just love music like that. So I have this talent for it. I, I really totally captivated by astrology, but I don't have the musical talent to be an astrologer. I know that. Mm-hmm. Just as I don't have it, I don't try to be a visual artist. I can't do it. 
as much as I would like to. So I don't have the talent in me or whatever required it. I don't know if that's the right word. But what I, so what I do is that I'm, I kind of, I keep an astrological mind. I mean, I do use, see, there's no, I have to say something else here. To me, looking at the clouds is astrology too. So anything in the sky, anything that's going on in the sky is astrology as far as I can see. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, and Ficino thought that way. He talked about the sun rising, you know, the, pay attention to the sunrises. And uh, uh, not just the, not, not, a, not in a, the, the form of astrology so much, but just your relationship to, the, to the, what's happening in the sky. So I do that. And I do some things, like we're do, I'm just about to plan a, uh, uh, an e-course that I want to do. And yesterday we were looking over to find the best day to begin. You know, we wanted to avoid, avoid a course moon, and we wanted to, you know, maybe a new moon would be a nice beginning. We built our house beginning on uh, the, the uh, spring equinox, you know, things like that. So we were, were aware of that. My wife probably more than I, certainly more than I. But, uh, but I feel that it's, it's my way of being all the time. It's my relation to nature. And I'm aware of that. And as much as I can be of the specific astrological life, I, I try to be aware of. And I have astrologers helping me. I have expert astrologers helping me. There's a fellow, maybe you know him, uh, Brian Clark, is uh, is an astrologer in Tasmania who um, is my guide in many ways. He helps me. I have other astrologers who guide me who are really, really good at it. And so I rely on them to, with big decisions. But the everyday is a relationship to this world that's moving around me. And so the alchemy and the astrology kind of blend together for me. I can very much relate with what you're saying. What kind of things would you go to an astrologer for? I know you, you talked about your house and, and yeah. when to launch your course. You say yeah. big decisions, Wedding. you go to your guides. Wedding, the, yeah, big things like that, yeah. Those are the main things, but I might just check in with them about uh, health issues or a project of a new book I want to write, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mainly it's something some, something to do like that, trying to see. Yeah, the other thing I do, just so you, so you know, it's all a piece for me. I use the obsidian stone. You know, I have, this is my little tiny version that I have on my desk. So I use this stone also to help me. This I use more often than anything else. I have it with me available daily mm. to, to be able to look at. So it's all in the vein. It's in the vein of, Natural magic, magia naturalis, being in the world, living magically, which I think is the sole way to operate. Sole operation is magic. It's not. It's not uh, figuring things out and planning and and you know mechanical kind of activity. It's magical. This is my main thing. Okay, two questions: What is magic, and why the obsidian stone? Uh, well. Let me start with the second question. Is okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, the astrologer, the astrologers that I that I met, some of them that I really like are John Dee, who was heavily influenced by Marsilio Ficino. John Dee was living at the time of Queen Elizabeth in England, and he was helping the navigators go around the world when they didn't have maps, and he was using the stone mm. and astrology together. And they tended to use the magic and astrology as as parts of a, of a whole. 
And uh, so he used a stone to do that. And when I first came across that, I was at the British Museum and I saw his actual stone. At least they're pretty sure it's his stone. And uh, it's from Mexico, just like this. It's a volcanic stone. And uh, so I got one done. So when I, I thought, well, if John D was doing all this, I could do a little bit with it. And so uh, it took me a while to get used to it, to figure out how to do it. I learned just by practice working with it. And now I know how to do it, I think. And uh, I, I've been doing it for many years. And uh, so what it does, it, uh, it gives me a way, a very concrete way of getting out of the rationalism that's all around me. The stone helps. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. You know, it's something there. And I can look, and it does actually give this really, really sparks the intuition. That's mm. good answers. It's a wonderful thing to do, I think. So uh, I, I combine those things. Natural magic means it's natural. It's not supernatural. Nothing supernatural is happening. It's natural. So one of the great magicians was a man named Trithemius, who was uh, an abbot of a religious community. And all he does for his main magic was coding and, and ciphers and uh, like, like alphabetical codes like they used to, in wars, you know, where they have, when they used to, in the Second World War, they used to send these messages and just have letters out of place and that kind of thing. Well, that was a form of natural magic. It's very, nothing supernatural about it. You just figure it out. But it has a magical quality to it because you get this message and it's totally unintelligible. And with this little key, you can figure it out. So that's natural magic. And I think people in business like to find the magic word that will make people buy their product. That's magic. That's where we see magic today, using calligraphy and uh, words, very much like Trithemius. His magic was, his natural magic was about words and letters. So that's one way to do it. There are other ways besides that. Color could be a very important part of uh, of the magic of your life. What what colors to wear? What what to dress? You know, that was very, that's very Ficinian. You know, Ficino was very interested in what you what colors you wear. And he gives he gives specific instructions what colors you should wear for different purposes. And he he also says uh, aromas. He would use different aromas and maybe perfumes and colognes. Not just to say, oh that feels nice, but this this is where I am now in my life, this is what I need. Mm. sorted out by saying this is what I need today but now at this point in my life so it's a very interesting rich detailed way of living it's natural but it's magical at the same time I don't think the average person today would understand why it's so important that you wear a certain color on a day not just because you like it or it goes with your hair or your skin or something but because it's going to affect your soul and that's where the magic comes in Wow. Which planet do you resonate the most with? Or um, do, you, do, you, uh, do you work with calling in the different kind of planetary energies? Which planets are, are you? Or do, do you feel your soul most reflected in? Oh, boy, it's hard to say because all of them have a place. The ones that come to mind, though, are uh, Venus. Because uh, what I, in my studies of uh, psychotherapy, which is really my main interest, uh, practice of therapy is that uh, uh, Venus or Aphrodite is the uh, uh, is the main goddess associated with the development of the soul, with the, with healing the soul, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's I think the goddess who could heal our society. I think Venus is the one we offend most. 
Mm. You know, the Greeks thought, and Hillman taught this over and over again, that the problems we have and the illnesses we have, the difficulties, are all due to the neglect of a god or goddess. Planet, you might say. It's, it's by neglecting, by not giving them their due, all of them. And, and so I think the one that we have most offended in our world is Aphrodite, beauty. We don't understand the importance of the beautiful. And as a result, we have all kinds of trouble, just all kinds of trouble. Until we go back to offering her some, some regard, we're going to be in trouble. For myself as a writer, I really honor Mercury or Hermes. And as a therapist, Hermes is really the, probably the main spirit in my work. It has to do with language. He has to do with language, with the surprise revelations, with humor, with uh, uh, not being so uh, dignified and noble, uh, with, with uh, uh, theft, a certain kind of deep way of stealing the right things. We have to steal from each other all the time. I'm stealing from you today. You're stealing from me. That's <laughs> what we're doing. So there's a, there's a kind of, there's Mercury Hermes is, by the way, if you really want to know the planet Mercury, you really should, you know, read and study about the god Hermes. So um, uh, that's, uh, those are the ones that, that are most important to me at the moment. Why do you think beauty? You I, I remain polytheistic instead of. Modern. Yes, it's great. <laughs> um, why do you think beauty is so important to the soul? I don't. Well, I don't think that. I guess I've learned that. Uh, I read uh, Plotinus is one of the earliest writers in the second century. Plotinus developed a philosophy called Neoplatonism, and most of these magicians were Neoplatonists at the same time. They followed this teaching of Plotinus. Plotinus has this uh, writing that we have from his time called the Aeneids, and uh, the Aeneids are a wonderful collection of essays on the soul going back to the second century, and. They are 80%, maybe 75% about beauty, the importance of beauty to the soul. He says along the way, and I've quoted this in my books, that he says that when you work on your soul, when you care for your soul, it's like a sculptor cutting away at a stone. And you realize that you need to get rid of this and get rid of that and keep shaping and polishing up and, until it's beautiful. Not so that it works, but so that it's beautiful. Mm. And I, I'm reminded all the time that some of the most soulful and beautiful people I know are very sick or uh, emotionally in great distress or uh, uh, psychotic. And mm. yet they're the most beautiful and soulful people I know. So I, I don't want to have being able to function as the criterion, as the criterion for soul work. Beauty is really the place. Beauty is what we need. We need a beautiful world. If we had a beautiful world, we'd be much better, more, uh, be much better off than trying to make it all function properly. Thomas, there's healing for me in hearing you say this. I have my sun and Venus conjunct in the 12th house. I don't know if that means anything to you, but yes. I've, I've always been very, beauty is very important to me in yes. my surroundings and, and I just, and I had one, a person say to me one time, what is this obsession with beauty? Like, it's so superficial. Why are you so obsessed? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I just like it to be beautiful. Yeah. And, and so there's a little bit of a shame that I felt for, for having that desire for beauty around me. Um, yeah. 
Well, see, that's what astrology could do for us. It could it could help us reclaim these things that that the rational world has disregarded, mm. but the astrological world doesn't. I mean, it's right there. You can't ignore the fact that Venus is right there and prominent, and also in a place. Uh, a place where you are really, you know, it's not what I'm saying, I guess, is that it's in the 12th house, you said. Mm-hmm. So you know, really, really out there, you know, and really um, doing what you do. I think it's probably exactly where it needs to be. Mm. Yeah. So it would be great. You know, we'd have to have a whole hour session on that. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask this one from Leah. This is, it would be an interesting one to end on, but it's a really great question from mm. your soulmates book. Thomas More writes from a Hermes point of view, sex offers guidance towards soulfulness, especially toward the deep places of the soul where strong emotions arise. We might look closely at shifts in our sexual fantasies for signals of what is going on deep in the soul. Our usual tendency is to judge these fantasies, to move quickly into either repressing them or acting them out. We don't think to take them as indications of movement of the soul. The soul has its own sexual poetics, which have far-reaching resonance and many levels of meaning. Okay, so then she asks, uh, Leah asks, in examining Virgo in my eighth house, I have a question. How can we best honor the archetypal movements of soul and eros in our lives while still maintaining an inner sense of morality and respect for our significant relationships? Okay, the the, the general answer to that question, especially the last part of it, is that uh, human beings can do more than one thing at a time. That's just what you have to know. You start with that. Or another way to put it more in a fancier way is that uh, what Hilma used to say is that the soul is polytheistic meaning that there are many, many different claims made on us, many gods, many, many, uh, many planets, and they each have a place. They, one doesn't rule out the other. The question is for the human being is to live astrologically, is to live polytheistically, to be able to say yes to all of those, uh, all of those possibilities and all those claims. So uh, Virgo and Venus, you know, I mean, like, what do you do with that? Well, you and Hermes. Uh, so you, what you do is you can, uh, you have to spend your life, probably a part of your life, trying to work it out. It doesn't happen overnight, and there's no logical answer to it. So you have to work it out for yourself in, in a way that nobody else does. So work out for yourself how to make your sexuality very much a part of your life and your identity. But you know this talk about Hermes, the stuff that that material I wrote about Hermes and looking at the fantasies and images. Uh, when you do that, if you don't take sex only as behavior, but as uh, the images around sex, then you have a better chance of seeing it be able to be coexistent with Virgo or with, uh, with that Virgo uh, feeling and requirement. They go together well because you wouldn't want to have just totally unbridled sexuality. I don't think so anyway. Maybe some people feel they would, but I think the Virgo play the Virgo uh, idea plays a good role with that. With that, it goes hand in hand very well with with Hermes in that regard. Hermes fell in love with uh, with nymphs, you know, and there's stories about that. He he would fall fall in love with these uh, virginal type nymphs. I think that's very interesting because he he needs the he needs the whole pulling back and the holding back, the fantasy that I am pure, that I am not. My whole life isn't devoted to sex, or I'm not. I'm not compulsive about my sexuality. I can 
fit it into my life in a way that it fits with my other values. So um, I think that that helps. If you follow me, I think I'm moving kind of quickly there. But um, if you don't make Hermes too narrow or sexuality too narrow, but see that uh, that sex is really about images. When you have any sexual fantasies, you don't have to take them literally. What do I do? Do I do this or do I do that? What do they suggest in a bigger way? I find as a therapist that with people that dreams of sex, that they're making love in their dreams, that it's not so much usually about their sexual relationships in life as it is about the joy in life or their feeling of vital and, and alive. In fact, in general, I find that when people begin, begin having sexual dreams, their vitality picks up. Mm. It has a lot to do with vitality. And, v- and Hermes can certainly give that. So can Aphrodite. Can get, but all the gods are sexual in a way, even Virgo, sexual in a certain way. There's a virginal kind of sexuality. So um, I would be op- wide open, you know, open your mind to all those things and, and consider the question I asked before, or what I said before is human beings can do more than one thing at once and try to do that, try to be reserved and, uh, and pure in a way and very sexual too. Wow. Talk about life journey, navigating that reality that you just laid out. That's beautiful. Okay. Lori is asking, what's the most important thing to teach or model for our children and grand- and grandchildren? Model is really a good word. It's so important to model this. So the thing to do, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, within parents and teachers and grandparents to to want to uh, to want to mold the child or to well the first thing I have to say is don't try to make the child you don't you know I don't know if I should say this it's so obvious don't make the child yourself and don't make them be who you are and what you want to be or what you want them to be the whole thing is to let you know create an environment where they can be themselves which means they're going to be different from you which means they're going to be some tension just the way it is so. That's the first thing. Learn to live with that. And, uh, and don't expect this. Uh, the easy way is to have a child be exactly who you want them to be or who you want to be or you think you are. That's, that's the easy way. No challenge in that, but it's dead. There's nothing there. There's no life. So the, the point is then to nurture the child's own identity and realize that their identity will come out, gradually emerge out of their soul, not from some plan, not from not by getting a great job. It's not that. It's about what, how their soul emerges, and that changes over time. And it emerges slowly and gradually. And what you first see may not be where, where it's really headed. So just because they get, they, they get a job in finance doesn't mean they're going to stay with that. Maybe they're going to become something else, but that's going to lead them there. So you have to be patient and, uh, and really giving, not, not narcissistic at all. Not having to have your own self fulfilled, but let the child appear. And so you, your job as a parent is to nurture their soul, not to make sure that they, they grow up to be what, you, what everyone else thinks they should be or behave in a certain way. And if, they're, if they have a certain quirkiness or they get in trouble, sometimes I mean, work it into their whole plan. See it as part of their whole unfolding. Mm-hmm. And be big, have a broad broad net for that, broad capacity to see who they are. Mm. Okay. One final question. I know that we're at our time. Kai is wondering if you can provide us with five, you don't have to do five, 
could be two or three, whatever you want to do, daily practices that we could do to begin to open up, like you're saying, that flower opening up to listen, to be able to listen more, to be able to receive more what it is that our soul is trying to express to us. I don't know if I can do three or five, but let me just talk about it for a minute. Okay, Um, perfect. uh, You can, uh, I think the thing, the trick there is to discover what your desire is. Desire and soul go together. If you haven't read it, read the great ancient story of Eros and Psyche. That's the most important story about the soul. Eros and Psyche by Aquileus. It's available all over the place. And uh, it's really, really good story about the development of the soul. But it's about eros. So eros and soul go together. Eros can mean pleasure, it can mean desire, longing, sexuality, it can mean a lot of things. It's not just sex, though. It's, it's deep, deep desire. I understand Buddhists have some trouble with that because they may have been taught that the, no, that the noble truths say that suffering is caused by desire. I think that's a bad translation, probably, not that I know. Sanskrit. But what I've read is that the maybe a better translation could be craving. So we're not talking here about craving. We're talking about desire. Desire and the soul are like brother and sister or husband and wife. And so uh, if you could see what your desire is, if you could get a sense of that, feel it, feel the desire. What is? And you know, sometimes desire appears as a wish that's temporary. And you only get like the tip of the iceberg. You get a feel for what, what it is you want. And you have to think it majestically. So if your desire is for chocolate ice cream, think about a chocolate ice cream type of life. Mm-hmm. Think about what it would be. It might be dark and sweet. You know, and, think, and, and, and use your imagination to explore that desire that you have. You may have a desire to travel, or you may have a desire for a certain job to do, a career to have. And it may not be what you think. If I can talk about myself a minute, uh, I, at 13, thought I wanted to be a Catholic priest, and I studied for 13 years to be a priest. I left it. I left it because I thought it was over, and I wandered for a number of years, not knowing exactly what to do. It wanted nothing to do with religion or anything like that. I ended up with a degree in religion, and then I wrote a book called Care of the Soul, and since then I have spoken at more churches and at more pulpits than you can imagine. I get up there and I realize that I'm doing what I wanted to do when I was 13. But it's different. It looks different. It's not the same. But it's better in some ways. So uh, that's what I mean by the shape of desire. Your desire at the beginning may not, by the time some years have passed, may look very different, but still be the same desire being fulfilled. So you have to be, you have to look carefully. And, uh, and and think about things, and don't take everything. Don't take anything literally. Everything is an image and a story. So take it that way and see through what's going on. That's what Hillman says in the beginning of his uh, revisioning psychology. See through, see through everything that's happening. Don't take it in its as it appears to you. See its deeper story, its deeper imagery, its metaphorical nature. Uh, pay more attention to the metaphor than to the reality. Mm, Thomas, amazing. I could spend days. <laughs> I would exhaust you asking so many more questions. Thank you so much for being with us, for sharing. I mean, to 
to be able to share in your enthusiasm about astrology and how you see it and how you work with it is just so delightful. Um, and I know that it's, it's, it's so much fun for our audience to hear as well. And I'm just curious if people want to join your e-course or they want to learn more from you. I know you have so many books that we can read. Um, yeah. where, where should we go? Is there one place people could go to well, learn? Yes, my, I have a website. It's called thomasmoresoul.com, thomasmoresoul.com. And I'll be advertising. I mean, I show there. I have a calendar where I'm going. And I will certainly be detailing uh, e-courses that I'm planning right now and hope to start within weeks, a couple of weeks. And uh, so all of that is there. Uh, I do have a, a couple pages on uh, Facebook, that I, and uh, I also keep people informed through that and LinkedIn. I mean, I've tried it. I like to write, so I, I find all these different places where I can write. Perfect. Well, lucky for us, I am listening to Care of the Soul. And it's it for me, it's like it's an 11 hour book on Audible. So it's like this wonderful oh. backdrop to the days, you know, I'll just like tune in. And as I'm listening, I'm like, gosh, I wish he did some online courses, because it'd yeah. be so nice to, to work with him online. I don't know if I can travel. I have two little girls and on this island, but to be online. Especially from Maui, I know. Yeah, exactly. But to, I'm so happy to hear that you're bringing some of your work online and letting yeah. us study with you that way. It's brilliant. Brilliant. What's well, thank the first you. Course? What's the first course that you're doing? I think the, I, I, the first course is going to be uh, a, a general introduction to my work. It's going to be for people who really want to get into it. Mm. Uh, I'm going to do, I have some other courses designed and planned that will be, uh, for example, a course for artists and uh, a course on aging, because that's my last book. Mm -hmm. Things like that, they'll be a little lighter. But um, this first one is a substantial introduction to my work, where there'll be a whole series of, of courses that, can, that will all fit together and kind of flow out from each other. Exciting. I don't know for sure, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't know <laughs> <quite> much. <laughs> Wonderful. Thomas, thank you so, so much. It has just been complete and total pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, too. Thank you for inviting me and for those wonderful questions from people. They're really terrific. There was lots more. <laughs> Maybe someday we can do a part two. <laughs> but this is good a, to me. This is a great start. Thank you, Thomas. Okay. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.